Help me, Lord, your unworthy and sinful servant, to be full of the Holy Spirit and so be full of Jesus, that Jesus may speak from his heart to our hearts through your written word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, we've worked our way through Daniel 9.24. And if we understand Daniel, Daniel 9.24, we understand the whole thing. Because those are the six things that the Messiah would accomplish. The first three deal with putting away sin. The second one, uh, the next one, which is the fourth one, involves his becoming righteous in our place. Have you ever thought about it? What if God only forgave your sins? What if Jesus only passively obeyed the decree of God by dying on the cross? You and I would be on neutral ground with God. Neutral. I don't want to be on neutral ground with God, do you? But Jesus did more than dying on the cross for our sins. The three first things there in Daniel 9.24. What he did was to bring in everlasting righteousness. And that means that Jesus actively obeyed the law of God. Just as every believer is called to do. And his good works have been put to our account. Those that would deny the active obedience of Christ undermine our security of salvation. Because when I come knocking on heaven's door, I'm going to be admitted. Not because my sins have been taken away, but because I have positive righteousness that commends me to God. So we believe as Christians in the active obedience of Christ... He obeyed the Father and died on the cross and the passive obedience of Christ. Excuse me. We believe in the passive obedience of Christ that he obeyed the Father and died on the cross for our sins, taking away the guilt of our sins, but also in the active obedience whereby he perfectly kept the law in our place. That doesn't excuse us from being obedient, but it means that when we come knocking on heaven's door, we have an entree because we have positive righteousness. He brought in eternal righteousness, everlasting righteousness. And then we looked two weeks ago, he sealed up vision and prophecy. Jesus completed the entire revelation of the Old Testament. And we live in the last days. When did the last days begin? They began when Jesus came into the world, died on the cross, rose again. That's when the last days begin. At the end of these days, says the writer of Hebrews, the end of the days of Old Testament revelation and New Testament fulfillment. And then lastly, we saw last week, He anointed the most holy. And we realize that that refers not to the old Jewish temple, which is a shadow of the substance, which is what? The Lord Jesus Christ and all those who are in him. And that's a very fundamental truth. I will tell you this, having preached through the book of Hebrews at least four or five times in my ministry, No one 
can read the book of Hebrews and fail to understand how Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks is fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice now verse 25, where we're going today. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Now, all you have to do is read Ezra and Nehemiah and the post-exilic prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, and Malachi. And when you read those books, you realize that what happened is this. The Jewish people were in, in anticipation that at the end of, of Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years, they were going to return back to the promised land and everything was going to be coming up roses. That's what they thought. But it wasn't going to be that way. And that is the whole backdrop of this. And what's important here is not literal years as such. He doesn't even say weeks of years. He says 77s. What are those? Those take us back to Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah prophesied that at the end of 70 years, Israel would be restored to the promised land. But as we think about it, what happened? Well, God raised up, as he always does, one tyrant to replace another. And the tyranny of Babylon fell in a single night under the Medes and later the Persians. Because the Medes come up first and the Persians come in and they're all part of the same basic empire. That's why we have Darius the Mede in the book of Daniel. But we also have Cyrus the Great. And so in a single night, Babylon is destroyed. And Cyrus the Great issues a decree and says that the Jewish people can return to their homeland. And so they begin to trickle back. And all you have to do is read Ezra, Nehemiah, and the post-exilic prophets. And you realize it was a terrible time. Terrible time. Terrible time. Persecution. Opposition constantly. You know the biggest opposition? came from the people who were half-breeds. What do I mean by half-breeds? I'm not talking about genetics. I'm talking about a syncretistic half-breed religion. What was that? Well, the Babylonians realized that when they, or actually it was the Assyrians, the Babylonians continued it, that when they exiled a people, they had to put other people in their place. And so what happens under the Assyrians, basically the same empire as the Babylonians, what they did was to send a whole bunch of foreign people in there to replace the Israelites who had been exiled uh, out of their kingdom when it finally fell in 722 B.C. And so what you have is a mongrel religion. What is that? Well, these people were experiencing terrible things. Lions were eating them. Diseases were affecting them. They didn't know what to do. And so they're appealing to their overlords, the Assyrian overlords, help us. We don't know how to worship the God of this land. And so a priest is sent there to teach them to worship Yahweh, that is, the God of the Bible. Because 
God's name is Yahweh. And so they are taught to worship Yahweh. But what did they do? They worshiped Yahweh and they also worshiped their own gods. And we call those people the Samaritans. The Samaritans. Why did the Jews despise the Samaritans so much? They despised the Samaritans so much because they were fake Jews. What I mean by that? That is that they adopted the formalism of the Torah, the first five books of Moses, but they did not accept the rest of the Old Testament, and their religion was very corrupted. There is a Samaritan Pentateuch. So they worshiped the true God, but they also worshiped the other gods, and their religion was very corrupt, very distorted. And so what happens is, when the Jews begin to return back, 539, 538 B.C., they immediately encounter opposition. And their attempt to build the temple is stopped until finally they get an appeal. And the Roman emperor, Darius, issues a decree allowing them to rebuild the temple. And that happens in 520 B.C., and is completed in 516. So what I've said before is there are two overlapping clusters of 70 years. There's the exile that begins when the last godly king of Judah is killed. And Judah comes under uh, becoming a vassal of various empires. So Josiah is killed in 609 B.C. And Israel is released and allowed to return to the homeland in 539, 70 years later. But the temple is destroyed in 586 B.C. And it is completed in 516. Now in this time of trouble, the city is eventually rebuilt. You remember Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And what was a cupbearer? He was not like the Mater D. What it meant was that he's standing beside the king, and it's his job to advise the king and do other things. He's a counselor to the king. And of course, you understand that politicians want smiling yes men and yes women all around them. And so Nehemiah shows up. He's just heard all of the troubles. And he finally says to the king, because the king says to him, What's the matter with you, boy? You ain't smiling this morning. You got something on your heart, something on your mind. And, he, and, and Nehemiah says, I prayed in my spirit. Do you ever pray in your spirit? That's where real praying takes place. It's when you're in an emergency situation and you don't know what to do. And you cry out to God. You don't let people know what you're doing. And he cries out and he said, well, Lord, guide me. And he tells him. And so the king authorizes him to return to Jerusalem and the walls get rebuilt. And that's the first cluster of sevens. It's not people get all uh, confused because they try to date this with this and this with that. But when you're dealing with 69 of these sevens, the first cluster deals with the time of trouble when the Jewish people return to their homeland. And then after that, there's a period of 69, of 62 years, 62 clusters of sevens. What does that mean? 
Can we date it? No, you can't date it. It has nothing to do with chronological, historical dates. It's to miss the whole point. The whole point is this is rooted in the 70 weeks, in the 70 years of captivity about the Jubilee. When would the great Jubilee come? And what God has told Daniel is this. The great Jubilee isn't going to come until after 69 weeks. 69 clusters of seven. Now think about that with me for a moment. Seven plus 62 is what? Seven plus 62 is? Nobody took million man math made easy. Seven plus 62 is 69. Now I want you to notice something here. And, uh, and that's verse 26. After the 62 sevens. When are the 62 sevens? They're after the seven sevens. It says the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. Who is the anointed one? Well, the anointed one is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the son of David. He's the one who was prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. Actually, the very chapter I read about the dry bones this morning goes on to talk about David will be your king. I'll be your king. And so in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the true God. All the other gods are false. Coupled with the descendant of David, who rules as his father David over the people of God. That's prophesied at the end of Ezekiel 37. And so what do you have here? You have the Messiah. You have the anointed one. Well, what happens The anointed one is going to be cut off. What does that mean? Well, first of all, again, I want you to look at the little chart. And the little chart kind of shows you this. And it's good to look at and take home because you see that the Messiah is cut off after the 69 weeks. After the 69 weeks. Now, it says here he'll be cut off. What in the world does it mean that he would be cut off? It's the Messiah, clearly. It's the anointed one. It is the Messiah. That goes from the Hebrew word. Christos is the Greek word. The Messiah, the Christ, will be cut off. Now notice, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament, well, to the older part of the Testament. Let's go back, first of all, to Genesis 15. And I've preached on this before. Genesis 15 is the heart of the gospel. Page 21. And uh, Genesis 15 and verse 7. Abraham has asked God, how can I know I'm going to inherit this? How can I know that my descendants are going to inherit this? And so this is how God shows him. Verse 17. Genesis 15, 17. When the sun had set... And darkness had fallen. A smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant, cut a covenant with Abram and said, and so this is the deal. What's in view here? Well, if you, we're not going to go into a whole study that I did last year. The point is this. Abraham asked God, how can I know this? And God tells him to take some animals and cut them in half. Get all that blood out there. And 
Never forget, biblical redemption involves blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So what happens? In the ancient world, when two people made a treaty, they would slaughter animals, put one half here, one half here, and then they would walk between the pieces. In effect, what they were saying was this. If I do not keep up my part of this covenant, may the gods do this to me and more also. That's language of covenant making. Now, notice something that's really amazing. What role does Abraham have in securing this covenant? Zip, zero, nada. Nothing. He is fully passive. Who makes this covenant with Abram? It's unilateral. What does it mean? It means that God himself, under the emblems of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, passes between the pieces. Do you know what God is saying to Abram there? He's saying, if this covenant doesn't come true, if this covenant isn't fulfilled, may I be cut off in damnation, in imprecation, in curse, just as these animals have been cut in half. That's powerful. That's powerful. But there's more to it than that. This is pointing us, back here in Genesis 15, to what we read in Daniel chapter 9. But let's turn over two chapters. Let's go to Genesis 17. Because of this, we go over to Genesis 17, page 22. And God says, we'll begin in verse 1, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. And he keeps going on. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. Now, keep going on. God then gives a sign or a token of this covenant. And as you're looking there at verse 9, I'm going to remove my wedding ring. Here's my wedding ring. Am I still married? Sandy, am I still married to you? That's right. And I've just taken off my ring. Our relationship is not based on this ring. The ring is a visible word of commitment. When I look at this ring, it reminds me that I entered into a covenant on July the 6th, 1968, when I swore before God and people that I would be her faithful husband. Now, if I had my dog, I don't have a dog anymore, the last one got run over. Um, but if I, had, um, if I had a volunteer, if I put this on poor Iona back there, would she become married to me? 
Of course not. The point is that this ring is a token or a sign or a seal of a covenant that I made in 1968. Now, notice what God says in verse 9. Genesis 17, 9. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant that you are to keep. Every male, now remember the Old Testament is different than the New, because under the Old Testament, women are virtual chattel, but in the New Testament, we're one in Christ. So the focus is on the male here. And he says, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign, the symbol, the token, the seal of the covenant between me and you. And he tells them to go on down. And he, he mentions many things there. Now, look over across the page. Verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now let that sink in for a moment. As we turn over to the New Testament, to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. And I want you to see how all of this ties together. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians uh, chapter 2. And that's page 1833. 1833. And that's Colossians 2 beginning at verse 9. And this is what Paul writes. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Now look at verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. I'm going to ponder that for just a moment before we read the next verse. What is circumcision? Circumcision has a number of meanings. The first meaning it has is this, that we are without reservation dedicated to God. It also symbolizes the cutting off of the old sinful nature. If you read Romans chapter 2, you see it also is related to faith and, and, and so on. So what happens? When was Christ circumcised? There's a circumcision recorded in the Gospel of Luke. But that's not the circumcision that's in view. When was Jesus circumcised? He was circumcised in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. What do I mean? Wait a minute. You've totally lost me, Bob. 
You mean that Jesus was circumcised on the cross? Yes. What it means is that he was cut off in covenant judgment, just as Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, passed between the slaughtered animals in that covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. But what you're seeing here is this. There is an imprecation. There is a curse in Genesis 17 for the person who fails to keep the covenant. And what is that? That is to be cut off. And what I want you to see here is that Jesus was circumcised on the cross. Because what does circumcision mean? It means the judgment of God. The judgment God called down on his own head in Genesis 15 is called down on the head of Christ as he is cut off from the land of the living. Now, what is that related to? Well, let's keep reading there. Reading there, page 1833, Genesis 2:12. Having been buried with him in baptism... Wait a minute. When was Jesus baptized? Wasn't that about 26 AD when John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan River? No. Do you remember Jesus' words when the disciples are arguing and they want to do this and they want to do that? And the mother of James and John said, Can you, would you grant me a favor, Jesus? I want my boys to get a big promotion. I want them to be at your right hand and your left hand. And he said, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? What happens on the cross is this. The wrath of Almighty God is poured out in a baptism of judgment, a baptism of wrath on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how baptism and circumcision are outwardly different but inwardly the same? Circumcision points to the judgment of God. If I don't fulfill this covenant, may I be cut off just as the organ of generation has, a, has the prepuce cut off in the ceremony. May I be cut off from the land of the living if I don't fulfill this covenant as God passes between the pieces of the slaughtered animal. And he gives them this ordinance, this sealing ordinance, this visible word of God called circumcision. And he says, this you must do to every child on the eighth day. Now remember that Abraham received the token of the covenant after he had already experienced true circumcision, which is the new birth in faith. If you read Romans 2 and Romans 4. But the point is this. Circumcision is a judgment from God. It's calling down the judgment of God. And the real circumcision of Christ didn't occur in 26 AD, but in 30 AD when the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, He who is truly God, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form, when He was cut off on the cross. And that is also when He was baptized. He was baptized in the judgment of God, not in 26, but in 30 A.D. when he was overwhelmed. And you know, this isn't about a mode of baptism. You know, the weight we baptize is a matter of interpreting a weight of evidence. It's not crystal clear like the doctrine of the Trinity or Jesus has two natures. But the point I want you to see is, that the wrath of God 
was poured out on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he confirmed the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 15 as he died an ignominious and shameful death on the cross. As he was overwhelmed. As he was immersed with the outpoured wrath of God on his own head. Father, Father, he says, Abba, Father, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken on the cross. He was cut off in covenant judgment. He was circumcised on the cross. He was baptized on the cross. That's the true meaning of both baptism and circumcision. It doesn't point to you and me. It points to the Lord Jesus Christ, the David's greater son. Yahweh said to my master, Sit at my right hand till I make you a, your enemies a footstool for your feet. And how is all that possible? It was possible because the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and mine. He was cut off from the land of the living. And he had nothing. And he was taken down from the cross. His circumcised body His body drenched with his own sweat and blood in this fiery baptism. He's lured from the cross and given to a rich man who takes him and places him in a brand new rock-hewn tomb. And there he lies, his body lies. But his spirit descends into the darkness, into the depths, where God's people, before the coming of Christ, were kept in paradise, a pleasant place, separated from the unpleasant part of Sheol. And then, when the Lord Jesus rises from the dead, He makes it possible for you and me, without anybody ever doing anything to us bodily, to enter into the precious application of His circumcision and his baptism. Do you know the Lord? It's a question I always have to ask. Yesterday, I did the funeral of a very dear friend. And because it was a congregation made up of lots of different people from lots of different places, including Muslims, what I did was to expound on the meaning of a painting that this man did of me. And I used it to present the gospel. And I said at the very end, how would Joe paint you? Because if we really know ourselves, if we know our heart of hearts, we are haunted down the cars of time, the things we've done. But Jesus was damned in your place. That's not cussing. He was damned in your place. He was cut off in your place. He was circumcised in your place. He was immersed in the judgment of the outpoured wrath of God in your place. May we pray. Lord, I pray that all of us would truly know the Lord. We thank you, Lord, that the Lord Jesus Christ confirmed the covenant made with Abraham of Genesis 15. And he did so by taking the curse of the smoking torch 
and burning firepot. And by being cut off in judgment of those who refuse to take the mark of the covenant on themselves in Genesis 17. We thank you that because he was damned in our place, if we are united to him, we need not fear damnation. We need not fear going to hell. We need not fear the lake of fire. Lord, we pray that all of us here would know the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.